Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So that is Hebrews 12, uh, the whole chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you that you are the God who speaks. Uh, speaks a word of grace. A release from bondage. Uh, burdens are lifted. The burdens caused by our own sin, uh, giving new hope, new strength, new courage. Uh, We pray that you would do that again tonight. Uh, We pray that by your spirit, as we hear the word of your son, the word of grace, uh, that we would indeed uh, be emboldened uh, to run for you. Uh, We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Well, please take a seat. And uh, it's worth uh, turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 that Dan read for us uh, just before, page 1210 of the church Bibles. And on the back of uh, the service sheets, you'll see an outline of uh, where we'll be heading as we uh, look at that together. And as a uh, a sort of a Christmas discount, uh, the very last point you'll see on the back of the outline there, um, we won't be getting to. So there's already a discount uh, on the sermon, whether you view that as a good or a disappointing thing, I'll leave up to you. But uh, that's just worth noting as uh, as we go along in this uh, in this chapter, Hebrews 12. Uh, we've been in uh, Hebrews now for for a good number of months uh, since uh, the end of the summer, and here we are near the end, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1, with this command, this exhortation: Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run. With perseverance, the race marked out for us. Uh, run the race of faith. That is the challenge to us tonight. And as we saw in uh, chapter 11, uh, we were given there a whole list, a whole series of people who have run that race of faith before us. Uh, you might remember last week and when we looked at chapter 11, in the very first verse of chapter 11, verse 1, we saw what this faith, uh, this race uh, was based on. It was based on their certain confidence that God would do as he has promised, that he would uh, deliver on all that he has promised to do for them. Uh, Each one of them that we met uh, last week in chapter 11, each one of them reached the end of their life, their race, trusting the word of our God's promise. And as we saw last week in verse 6 of chapter 11, that is a life that pleases our God. But as we turn to chapter 12 uh, tonight and in this encouragement in verse 1 to run the race of faith, it is as if the Spirit of God is saying to us, well, enough about them, and now it's your turn. It is your turn now to run the race of faith. Uh, You who know that all that God has promised us, all, all the promises he has ever given have been fulfilled in his final word to us, that is the word of his son Jesus. You who know that, uh, let us run the race of faith. Uh, our race is a very deliberate one. Our race is the race of faith that is fixed on the sure and certain trust that we have in Jesus. That he is the son of God. That he died on the cross. That he shed his blood there for us. Our race is one where we are confident that his blood is enough. Enough to bring forgiveness and forever. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. That's our race. Our race is to be sure that because of that once and for all sacrifice on the cross, we can draw near to God again. 
And no longer is there a distance. No longer do we have to fear him. We can confidently approach our God because of Jesus. That we can be there in his presence, confident and clean and loved and heard by our God. And our race is the one where we are sure that one day Jesus, God's son, our saviour, will appear again. Uh, But this time not to bear sins, for he has done that already, but to bring salvation, to bring our hope. And so quite simply, as we hear this call to run the race of faith tonight, we are being called to cling to Jesus. All he has done for us, all he is doing for us even now, and all he will do when he comes again. And so with that in mind, we have this simple clarion cry. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And so with that cry ringing in our ears, let me ask you, uh, this night, uh, November 2012, how is your run going? Uh, How are you travelling? Are you tonight uh, someone who would describe your race as strong? Are you in a sort of a burst of speed sort of stage in the Christian life? Uh, You're really going for it. Or perhaps you're labouring, feeling the pinch in this race of faith. Perhaps current uh, and uh, persisting circumstances have made it very hard to run with any vigour at all. Or perhaps it's not circumstances, perhaps it's uh, a persistent sin that is weighing down your run, uh, making it really hard to run for him. Or perhaps you're here tonight and you've only recently become a Christian. You feel like you're still finding your feet in this race of faith and not sure if you're running correctly or not. Or perhaps you're someone who's been running for years, yes, but somehow along the way you've lost course. Uh, Your race now is, well, directionless. At best, you're standing still. You're not road racing, you're on a treadmill. And you're not sure how your real life, your normal life and your life of faith, how they overlap at all, really. Or perhaps you're someone here tonight and you're not a Christian. You have not come to trust Jesus. You've not even entered the race. Unsure whether it would even be worth it. How's your race going tonight as you hear that call to run the race? Uh, With that question in mind, uh, remember the, the first readers of this letter. Remember where their race was at as this letter was written. They were those who had started out strong, but somehow they were running out of puff, shrinking back, we were told, uh, pulling away from Jesus. Well, wherever you're at in your race, uh, the Spirit simply says this to you, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And what we have in the rest of chapter 12 uh, is really four encouragements for your race, four reasons why it is so good to be in this race. And four reasons to strengthen our weak knees and arms as we run for him, our hope, Jesus. So let's look at them together. The the first one you see in verses 1 and 2, it is this. Let us run as those who are unhindered and undistracted. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders And the sin that so easily entangles, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. A run, uh, essentially, like Eric Liddell would say, the first half I run as fast as I can, and then my plan for the second half, run even faster, uh, with God's help. And before you think to yourself, oh great, and now what you're telling me is I have to be like an Olympic champion to run this race. It's a sort of survival of the fittest. Well, no, far from it, in fact. That was the whole point of this list in chapter 11. 
these cloud of witnesses that surround us. If you look back to chapter 11, uh, these witnesses are not witnesses to their own running prowess. No, many of them were stuff-ups and stumblers in their race. Uh, They're witnesses not of themselves, but of the God who kept them running, who carried them all the way to the finish line. They are witnesses of God's faithfulness. And they are saying to us as they surround us, as we run our race, he can carry you to the finish. He carried us. And so run, they say, knowing this is not a race where selection is based on your fitness, rather on your willingness to trust God's gracious faithfulness towards you. And so therefore knowing that, let us run, we're told, unhindered. It's a challenge in verse 1 to throw off everything that's going to keep us from running, everything that's going to make us hard to run for him. And so let me ask you, do you know what those things are in your life? Do you know the things that hinder your race, that slow you down? Remember, this is a race. You don't want to be burdened with things. Now, I'm not speaking here of uh, let us get rid of things that make us busy so that we can't fill our diaries with endless church events. No, this race of faith is not just run here on a Sunday night. This is a race that's meant to be run in all of our life. Each aspect, each detail of our life is either an opportunity to run faithfully for him or it's a potential hindrance that will slow that race down. And so knowing this, I think as we hear this challenge tonight, we need to work hard ourselves to spot the hindrances, things that may not in and of themselves be sin. They may be good gifts. But when you're as richly blessed as we are tonight, uh, the race of faith, it's not run by asking, well, what's wrong with that? Or what's wrong with this? Why can't I have that thing? Or why can't I do this or be that? I'm free, I'm blessed, I, I can do what I want. No. The race of faith is run by asking amidst all of these blessings that God gives us, is having this or doing that or being that or experiencing this thing, is that going to enable me to run for him? Run with that over time greater faith, greater hope, greater love, greater holiness. And so let me say for the youth and for the students here tonight, don't simply ask of your music or movies or parties, what's wrong with that? Answer is for most of it, nothing. In fact, more than that, most of those things are a good gift. But simply asking what's wrong with it is, well, lazy running. Ask instead, does this help me run for him? That's not just true uh, for youth and students, it's true for us all. Uh, We have so much in our lives, so much detail. Each thing is an opportunity to run this life of faith for his pleasure or an opportunity to allow something else to hinder my progress or even worse, entangle me. You see, they're the sin that so easily entangles. It's such a great picture, isn't it? Uh, We get entangled by things when we think, yes, I know Jesus is my joy. I run for him. But you know what? I'd be better off if I run for him via this other thing. In fact, without that thing, even with him, I won't be happy. And so I need that thing, whether it's a, a better job or a better marriage or whatever it might be. Without that thing, I can't be happy. The problem with that is pursuing your joy in Jesus via something else. Well, you never get through that thing to him. That thing becomes, well, the ultimate thing for you. 
It really is pathetic, isn't it, how such simple things can become that ultimate thing for us. And near the end of this chapter, we'll see Esau who sold his reward, his joy, for a bowl of soup. Hebrews 12 verse 1 is a command, look at your life. Think hard about what you're doing, about what you're focused on, about your priorities and get ruthless. You're in a race. What's going to stay? What's going to go? Let us be those who run unhindered. And to do that, let us be those who run undistracted. That's verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's how you run. For he is the foundation of our faith from the beginning right to the end. He pioneered your faith. It's his idea. By the cross he did that, despising the shame of the cross. He perfected your faith, sitting down at the Father's right hand as we saw back in chapter 10. The very foundation of your faith, your sins forgiven, it's completed. Fix your eyes on him who has already run for you. Fix your eyes on him who is the very model of this faith. We've seen all of these examples in chapter 11, but then comes the grand finale, the, the best runner of all, the runner of faith par excellence, our Lord. Fix your eyes on him. And fix your eyes on him because he is the one who will sustain your faith, who is able, we're we told in chapter 13, to equip you with everything good to run this race. And so let me say in this uh, first encouragement, the only way to let go of things that will hinder us or to untangle ourselves from the web of idolatry where good things become ultimate is with eyes that are fixed on him as our prize, him alone. Well, that's the first encouragement. Here's the second one. Run as one trained by the wise discipline of a loving father. You see that in verses 3 through 13. Now verse 3 uh, tells us that fixing our eyes on Jesus, one of the other things that that will do for us is it will help us to see what the normative experience of this race is, what it's normally like to run this race. And uh, what do we see there? Well, it's, it's a costly race. It's a race where we will suffer. And the first readers of this letter needed to hear that. Do you remember their experience uh, back in chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, when they came to trust Jesus, when they began running? What happened to them? Suffering, opposition, cost. How easy it would have been for them to think, uh, are we running? Is there something wrong with the way I'm running? Am I doing something wrong here? How easy to lose heart. And so the Spirit says to them and to us, consider Jesus. Consider his suffering And as you run after him, why would you think your run would be any different? And so knowing that is the normal experience of this race, how are we meant to view then the the difficult circumstances that might come our way, the the hard bits of the race where we go through the valleys or the the rough terrain? Well, with that in mind, uh, verses 5 to 11 help us, I think, enormously. Here we see that the difficult circumstances are, are not to us a sign that God doesn't love us, Or a sign that somehow in this moment of this part of the race, he's sort of lost control. Our Heavenly Father is not looking on as we run, as seeing us buffeted by life and fretting, thinking, I wish I could help. No. And these verses help us to get a much clearer picture of what is actually happening as we run through that rough ground. Follow with me the teaching. I think these verses are incredibly helpful. 
Verses uh, 5 to 11, the word discipline occurs some eight times. And what the author is doing is he's redirecting our understanding of our circumstances. He says that the, the sort of the twists and turns of life, the, the rough parts of life, uh, they're not haphazard, they're not pointless, they're not cruel. They are, in fact, the wise discipline of a loving heavenly father. Here we see what he means in verse 1 where he said the race marked out for us. You see the biblical idea of discipline that we get all the way through these verses uh, has in it uh, sort of two ideas. The idea of chastisement and instruction. Even when it's painful it is purposeful. It's a discipline that can take many forms. It can take uh, the form of difficult experiences that are inflicted by others on us or maybe things that just come upon us or even things that we've caused ourselves. It can be all sorts of things. Each race is differently marked out. And when it comes to this race of faith, our progress in it is determined in part by how we receive those circumstances. And with that in mind, verse 5 tells us that there's a danger when we go through that of swinging to one extreme or another. Either, verse 5, we can take those circumstances too lightly. It doesn't mean anything. I'm not affected by difficult circumstances. It's fine. That sounds noble, doesn't it? A stoic view, even pious. But as we'll see in verse 11, it is desensitized delusion. If it hurts, it hurts. Let's not pretend, says the spirit. There's one extreme, take it too lightly, pretend it's nothing. The other is to be crippled by it, crushed by it, and lose heart. And the spirit says neither extreme is the right response to God's discipline. In fact, to run the race well in hardship, you need to see three things. Here they are. Firstly, in verses six to eight, you need to see the significance of that hardship. Have a look at verse 6. The Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship then as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Do you see the significance of our hardships? Those whom God loves, he disciplines. To be in the midst of difficult circumstances, as the first readers were, is not a sign of God's abandonment. On the contrary, it's a sign, verse 7, of God treating you as his child. This is what we should expect of a father-son relationship. That is, if our father loves us enough to want us to grow up, to want us to mature. Without such discipline, verse 8 says, it's as if you're fatherless. Discipline from God says you have a father who loves you enough to discipline you. Now sure, we might want to ask, why this discipline? Why now? Why me? And if you've never asked that, then again, I say you're making light of his discipline. But when we ask the why question, he does give us a clear answer. For a right understanding of discipline not only sees its significance, but secondly, sees the intention of it. You see that in verses 9 and 10. We've all had earthly fathers, we're told here in verse 9, that, and they disciplined us uh, and we respected them. For we know, verse 10, that they did the best they could. Now I know as we read that statement in verse 10, they did the best they could, uh, that statement I think begs a massive question for at least some here. 
What about rubbish fathers? What about rubbish human fathers that some might have had who in no sense did the best they could? Uh, Either in the sense that they were cruel and destructive and evil. And there will be some who feel that acutely. But I suspect even those who have had terrible human fathers will know what they longed for in a father. And then there are fathers who aren't cruel but careless. Fathers who are perhaps too selfish to discipline. And we know that indifference is not the same as love, is it? And again, those who've experienced that will know what they wish their father had been. And so we understand the logic of these two verses, 9 and 10, that a good human father will discipline out of love. So the Spirit says to us, verse 10, understand then the intentions of your loving heavenly father. God disciplines us, verse 10, for our good, that we may share in his holiness. You see, what our wise and heavenly father has done in our race, he has marked it out for our benefit that we may share in his holiness. That is, uh, as we run for him, as we endure his discipline, we will become like him in our character. You get the same idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where we're told that God works through all things for the good of those who love him. All things. And if you're wondering what the good is that he's working towards, the, the very next verse in Romans, verse 29, tells us it is the good of being made like his son. That's the good he is plotting towards. Which means our circumstances might not work towards my comfort or my success or my relief or my vindication. But he works all things for good. That I am running as one being shaped into the likeness of his beautiful son. Is there anything better than that? One final aspect you need to see of this discipline, not only the significance of it, not only the intention of it, but verse 11, the timing of it. How helpful is this verse? Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And such a helpful verse. All discipline, all discipline, not some, all, for the present doesn't seem joy but pain. And we need to recognise that. We need to watch out when we try to comfort somebody who is going through that rough terrain too quickly to say it's okay. Well, no, no, it's not. It's not. We need to watch toning down the severity of our circumstances as if we can say uh, to someone, well, your case is not as bad as that person's. God doesn't do that. All discipline is painful. Uh, We need to see the timing of discipline. If we do that, if we see the present nature of it that is painful, we will be infinitely more helpful to someone going through a hardship if we are able for a time to sit with them simply in the ashes. But later on, we're told, And that's the thing, later on, that's God's timing. God works through discipline in a slow, patient way. But it does happen. He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. These are things in the race marked out for us. There are things that in all of our races marked out for us that if we had our way, if we were plotting the course, they simply wouldn't be there. 
There are things in our race that if we could sort of fast forward through them to get back to the good stuff, uh, we'd do that. Or there are parts of our race where we think if we could just pause here for a little bit longer, this is kind of comfortable. Uh, we do that, but he's in charge. He who is training us by all of these things to be like his son. Training us so that we will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. But only, and this is important, only not if we just simply experience these hardships, but if we're willing to be trained by them. And so as you struggle, fix your eyes on Jesus. Use the training of hardship to strengthen your feeble arms and knees, we're told. For the race ahead, keep running for him, for your own good. And as we see in verse 13, and this brings us to the third encouragement, for the good of others. Where to run for the good of others, verse 14 to 17. I reckon this is, again, hugely important for us. We, we see that verse right at the start of chapter 12, run the race, and we're thinking about just ourselves. It's my race, it's an individual race, and off I go. How am I going? But no, that's not it at all, is it? The purpose of our training, the purpose of throwing off hindrances is so that we can help each other run. So that verse 13, do you see it there? The lame will not be disabled, but healed. Those who are struggling uh, will get back up off their, off their knees. Uh, the race of faith is a team pursuit. It's a bit like if you, you think about the Olympics, uh, that wonderful velodrome where, where you've got the team pursuit, that, that team working as one for the same goal. I remember reading about the, the British team's pursuit, the whole British cycling team, they had behind them this sort of group that seemed to be called the Secret Squirrel Club. Bizarre name, but their job was to work in all the details to make sure all the team, every little aspect was honed to perfection, maximum performance. Well, let me say with one another in this race of faith, we are each other's secret squirrel club. We are to plot and plan and make our ambition the run of each other, to run better and better and better. There are three things we're told here in verses 14 to 17 that we should be plotting for one another. Here's the first of them, verse 14. We should together be pursuing peace and holiness. Love it. Uh, make, uh, verse 14, make every effort. There's something reassuring about that, isn't there? Make every effort to live at peace with all people. In other words, it's going to take a lot of effort to live at peace with people. And I reckon the real danger is that because it takes effort to live at peace with one another, uh, we abandon the pursuit. If it's going to be that hard work, uh, we grow happy with the discord amongst us. Uh, a very English sort of discord, a polite discord, a sort of don't mention the war discord. And rather than pursuing peace, we settle for, well, quiet. But they're not the same thing, are they? And it matters. I reckon the times I've struggled most in my race of faith have been periods of ongoing discord with other brothers or sisters. Such a lack of peace can disable you in this race. And the same is true, we're told in verse 14, of holiness, this pursuit of holiness. It is a together activity. The call to be holy is to be holy together amidst sinners like you, other people like you who are weak and inconsistent. I reckon the people I know best in this world are the people I find it hardest to be holy around. I reckon if you find it easy to be holy in this church family, 
it's because you don't know them. Have a look around. Have you noticed they're sinners? Selfish, unreliable, and so are you. Spend enough time in this church family and one of two things will happen. You will either divide into little cliques of people that you find it easy enough to be holy around, people who agree with me, or we will slowly learn to be holy together, uh, which means over time we will have to forgive each other. We will be forbearing. We will love more than we feel we are loved back. We will pursue holiness together. Uh, Secondly, verse 15, we will see to it that together we grow in grace, not bitterness. And ultimately, this comes down to which soil uh, we grow in as a church. You see, the soil of grace and the soil of bitterness both produce plants. The soil of bitterness is found when we get into the habit of missing out on the word of grace. We ignore and neglect scripture when we gather together. We neglect the means of grace that he has given us, things like communion. We neglect fellowship where my brother might speak that word of grace to me. And whenever the word of grace is neglected, what we do is we fill our gatherings when we get together with other Christians with other words. Words of complaint or grumbling or selfishness. Words that will produce fruit. The fruit of envy and anger and insecurity and despondency and entitlement and grievance and it goes on. Such fruit is produced in our hearts in such a way that over time our hearts grow hard to the word of grace. We simply do not believe it. And so let us be those who commit one another to the word of grace that it may grow good fruit in us. One final together activity in this running together. Verse 16. See to it that we help each other avoid the snare of pursuing cheaper prizes instead of our ultimate joy, instead of Jesus and all he offers us. Uh, There we see Esau, as I mentioned before, this one who, instead of the promised reward, forsook that for a bowl of soup. But our choices can be just as insane. The writer highlights one for us, sexual immorality as an example, and why not? Because, well, let's be honest, at least among Christian men, it is the cheap prize that many of us get entangled in. And many Christian men whose run is completely crippled by pornography. And many Christian men whose run collapses in a, in a moment of madness where they take the opportunity of immoral sex. And in the process, even though they don't think they're doing it, they let go of Jesus. The writer is saying to us here, let us be those together who see that none falls along the way. One final encouragement, and it is my favourite. Verses 18 to 24, let us run as those who are already tasting victory. You know that moment uh, when you've been on a long journey somewhere, when when you you feel like the journey's almost done. There's signs that the journey's almost over. An example of that for me is that if you've ever been on a a long-haul flight, say from the UK to Australia, and uh, right near the end of the flight, you you know, for hours and hours and hours, there's been this sort of grim silence on the plane as everyone just thinks, we're getting there slowly, we're getting there, we're getting there. And then all of a sudden, this magical moment happens right near the end of the the flight where the lights come on and you can see out of the windows because they finally let you put up the little window, the little blinds. Why they have blinds, I don't know, because for the entire flight, you're not allowed to look out. Anyway, so you finally get to look out and you start to see the lights of home. 
And then this other wonderful thing happens. You hear this rattle behind you as the breakfast trolley starts to roll down the aisle. And all of a sudden, it's just this instant transformation over everyone who's in the plane. Suddenly, everyone's smiling. Silence gives way to chatter. There's laughter. There's all of a sudden strangers. This person that I've deliberately ignored the entire flight is my, my new friend. Well, let me say for us as we run this race, uh, you are at that moment. Do you realize where you've come to in this race already? You have come to Jesus. Now listen to the Spirit tell you where you are up to in this race. Now verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God who is the judge of all men, the spirits of righteous men now made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You have come to blood that speaks a better word than Abel. You've not come to what we see in verses 18 to 21, a place of fire and gloom and terrifying words. That's Mount Sinai. You've come to Zion, to your God, to Jesus. What he's saying to us is this. It's really what he's been saying all the way through this letter. He doesn't want us to miss it. As we run, you need to realize that you're already at the point where you can taste home, taste victory. And we saw it back in chapter 4 where he said, you've come to the throne of grace, you're there. We saw it in chapter 10 where he says, you can draw near to God with confidence, clean, nothing to fear. If you've come to Jesus, you have spiritually arrived. You are in fellowship with your God. You can be in his presence without fear. You can speak to him. You can receive mercy in a time of need. Here's where you're at in the race. You have arrived spiritually no you're not there yet physically but as Paul says to us in Colossians 3 you've been raised already with Christ you sit with him in the heavenly realms so take heart as you run you are almost home no longer at Mount Sinai that was all about separation and distance and fear you're at Mount Zion which is a place of access and availability and confidence And so having come to Jesus as his church, as a church family, the lights have come on. The lights of home are in sight, if you'd care to look. We should start the chatter, we should smile, we should rejoice, we should laugh, we should befriend the strangers around us and sing with joy, as we will in just a moment. We should sing with all our heart as one who can already taste home. You have 10,000 reasons tonight to sing like that. So let me pause for a moment as we stop, as we finish now. Let me pause and encourage you to consider your race. Consider the author and perfecter of that race, Jesus. Consider that you have come to him. And prepare to rejoice and sing together as those who are almost home. Let's take a moment just now in the quiet. Uh, to reflect on your own race. Perhaps as we reflect, reflecting on things that may hinder or distract, reflect on some of the discipline that your father has brought into your life, which is, well, hard to take. 
Reflect on the ways that you have not run for those around you. Let's take a moment to do that now. The Spirit says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Run unhindered and undistracted. Run trained by the discipline of a loving Father. Run for each other. Run rejoicing in the sweet taste of victory. And in the words of Eric Liddell, we believe God made us for a purpose, to run. And when we run, we feel his pleasure. Amen.